What's up, podcast world? Chat building back at you. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast 2020-21. Wild Foul Magazine. Giant annual gear issue for all of those listening and watching on YouTube or any of our other platforms. There it is. The Bible of waterfowl hunters, duck hunters, goose hunters. It says it right here on it. Skip Knowles and his crew, Mr. Chuck, the graphic designer, put the waterfowler's Bible. I'm going to make... Skip Knowles put his hand on a Bible, the right hand, and come up with uh, the right answer, the truth about where he got that term, because I think he stole it from yours truly, but I might be way off base with that. It's another episode of the Foul Life Podcast, Wild Foul 2020-21 gear issue, fueled by wildfowl magazine i cannot wait to get into today's episode we've covered everything we've covered the boats the motors the guns the ammo the concealment all the hunting accessories everything that goes into a duck call a goose call we've had fred zinc on here we've had kelly powers on here we've had tony vandemore on here you name it the who's who of waterfowling we're very blessed and humbled to have all of our guests take time out of their crazy schedule right now during quarantine 2020 and sit down with us and talk about what we love to do so much, and that's chase ducks and geese, not just for the pull of that trigger, but for the overall encompassing lifestyle. And today is no different. I am so blessed and humbled to have these three individuals join me today. Of course, my co-host, the main man of Wildfowl Magazine over the past 15 years, Skip Knowles. How are you, my brother? Not quite 15, but it feels like it these days. More like you 10. Look- I'm doing really well, man. It's good to see you guys. Um, I've really been looking forward to this one. Anytime you can, uh, a frustrated dog trainer like me can uh, have a conversation with some true dog man, you always come away with a little bit more wisdom. Well, Skip, I'm so proud of what we're putting together here. And you know how I feel about Wildfowl Magazine and the culture and the over, overall symbolism of what it means for me to walk into a duck hunting lodge or a duck camp and see it sitting in any of the rooms. And that could consist of a coffee table or the basket by the toilet. It doesn't matter. When you're in duck hunting country, USA, duck camp, America, you're going to see an issue of Wildfowl. There's some guys, Skip, that have 30 years of Wildfowl still saved every issue, like a duck stamp collection in a frame. Every issue for 30 years of wildfowl imagine that oh it blows me away it just tickles me to death every time and when we talked to your friend marty he, he basically moved to arkansas via tennessee from indiana just to chase ducks and he got the idea um, based on something he saw in one of our wildfowl magazine articles i think 21 years ago he said Hundred percent. That that story was amazing. And my next guest knows Marty Hesh. He's been in a boat with Marty Hesh. He's worked and handled dogs with Marty Hesh. You've heard him here before. I consider him one of my greatest friends in the waterfowling industry. Even though we live all the way across the country, when he's around, I'm automatically in a good mood. Not just because he's a sweetheart of a man, but because of his voice, the way he talks to his dogs. It's become a thing that we try to emulate here at the Foul Life and Banded Brands, and we can't do it. He's got a way. He's the dog whisperer. He owns one of the most successful kennels in the country in my humble opinion from mossy pond retrievers in the great state of georgia brad errington welcome back my brother yes sir thank you for having me you look good today uh, yeah i'm a hot it is hot in south georgia that uh, we have had our swimming trucks on with the dogs and we've been knee deep in the water pretty much all all day training it, it, it's a hot one we have a mutual friend, and we don't name drop, but we have a mutual friend in one of his country songs. He talks about knee deep, and the co his co-writer and singer on that song is Mr. Jimmy Buffett. So I'd like to be knee deep with you and those guys right about now, maybe with a cold beer around a beach or something. Last but not least, probably the innovator of sporting dog accessories, the originator of so many products and, and, and training techniques. He has a reputation that is just beheld in the industry of dogs, duck hunting, uh, I'm blessed to have him on the show. He reigns from the state of South Dakota. And I'm sure if I ask Brad Arrington or Lee Howard or any of the trainers across the country, what the last name Dawkin has meant to sporting dogs and training and hunt tests and UKC and AKC and everything that goes into the overall culture of sporting dogs, Mr. Tom Dawkin has been there, done that. And we're so proud to have him. Mr. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Chad. How's the weather in South Dakota? Pretty nice today, 85, sunny, uh, nice breeze, which uh, we get up here, you know, quite often. So, uh, you know, no problem here with the water or anything being too hot right now. So we're, you know, 
but we get 30 below in the winter. So that's, you know, <laughs> that's the flip side to this. Hey, Mr. Tom, um, I see that picture behind you. You got it. That's an awesome photo. How long has it been since you developed the dead foul and the training, the trainer um, that has been kind of the cornerstone of trainers and handlers all over the country? How long has Doc and Trainer been around now? I think we're, we're closing in. I think we're close to 20 years here at least. I'm kind of bad with dates, but I think it's been around at least that long since we uh, you know, started doing the designing and then uh, finally getting the product out on the market. Yep. Well, congratulations to you. Have is it blow your mind? I talked to Chris Aiken about this and I've talked to Brad about this and I want you and Brad to both touch on this. When you open wildfowl and you go through the gear issue, it starts with decoys. Okay. Let's just start with decoys. We are breeding a smarter bird. I mean, you can't keep making a decoy that looks exactly like ducks and geese and swims like ducks and geese and flaps their wings and all of the spinning wings and everything. The innovation of technology, Mr. Dawkins, um, the evolution of hunting equipment from the guns to the ammo to the camouflage patterns. We can stay in the field so much longer now and more comfortable men, women, kids. We can hunting has changed. We're live, living in the golden years of hunting, in my opinion. And I've heard many hunters say that have sporting dogs evolved. And is it a much different game today than it was 20 years ago when you brought the product to the market? Well, it's, it's drastically different. I, I've been training for over 45 years now professionally and, and just watching what, we can do with dogs now versus when we were doing back then. And then also, you know, training techniques, equipment change, uh, you know, for everybody. So uh, back in the day where people started training their dogs when they got to be about a year old, which was a standard many, many, many years ago, you know, we're doing things with, you know, little teeny puppies that, uh, you know, most people wouldn't have thought possible. So, you know, I mean, we're, we're really taking advantage of the fact that, you know, training's changed a lot. Any equipment, not I'm not talking just our equipment, but the equipment in general has really changed the industry. And Brad, would you would you answer that in the same way? You you're you're in your 30s, Brad, but you've been doing this since you were. I don't. I, I think the story goes that you started Mossy Pond at 18 or 19 years old. Has it changed a bunch in the last 15 years for you, Brad? Oh, definitely. Just just like Mr. Tom said, you know, I came up on on bird dogs, and um, you that's different than labs but um you know you you weren't supposed to touch a bird dog um until they were a year year and a half old and same pretty much same with the labs um it wasn't 45 years ago like mr tom said but um you know back in 02 and 03 when i started you know there were things that you, what we called puppy training um uh, but um formal training collar condition and stuff like that um a lot of stuff is is a lot different the way that we approach it now um you know we have a puppy program now that we start at 12 weeks old introducing them to stuff and introducing them to birds gunfire water um so it, it definitely um the birds may be getting smarter but the dogs are smarter trainers are smarter handlers duck callers wildfowl magazine everything yeah it's uh i think that where where we're going with this series mr tom Dawkins, is that we we, we work through the dog days of summer and people like you and Brad are literally in the dog days of summer. You're around this culture every day. Tom, when you, when you think about duck hunting, you've been in it 45 years, self and mingling. This is a awesome career you've put together, both hunting and sporting dogs. When you see this book come across your mailbox now, Mr. Tom Dawkins, do you still get giddy? Do you still get fired up? Or do you almost not want to open it because you're like, oh man, here I go again. I got to get my pocketbook out. Here I go spending money again. It's, it's that, you know, duck hunters are crazy gear nuts, right? What does wildfowl mean to you still, Mr. Tom Dawkins? And do you still get fired up and excited like a kid on Christmas Eve? Well, I love seeing new. I love seeing what the next thing is. And I think that, that that revolves around what's the next thing for us developing for our product. But I like seeing what's new in the industry. I can remember way back in the day when I first, you know, somebody came out with a decoy, it was plastic. Then I thought when, let's say, big butts came out, I go, it, it can't get any better. I mean, there's just... This is it. This is the end of how realistic things can look. Well, you know the deal. I mean, it it's just evolved to get better and better and better and better. The equipment. Remember freezing my feet off a million times. You know, now, I mean, there's no reason to be uncomfortable when you're out there. So I embrace the new stuff. I really do. Uh, I love the tradition. 
but I embrace the new stuff. It's going to make the you know adventure that much easier for sure. So does that magazine grace your kennel, your office, your house, your lodges? Do you believe in the wildfowl brand and the culture that Skip and his team are are, are putting to us? You know, readily available at our fingertips. Do you, at this stage in your career, do you still pick it up and do you look at the ads? Do you read the articles? Do you rely on it for information anymore? Or where where does wildfowl live in your life now? We see it as a real value. I mean, we're. You know, we advertise in Wildfowl and Gundog magazines. And, and one thing I, I feel, a magazine, somebody's going to pick it up repeatedly. You're going to put it down, pick it up repeatedly. If it's a high-quality magazine, you're going to do that. And, and I know that I do. Uh, yep, we can get a lot of information online nowadays. But if there's something there that, that you can pick up, look at it, put it back down. Same thing, I think, and, you know, Brad might have a little different take on this, but even training books. Uh, versus maybe, you know, when people were doing DVDs, uh, that training book, you can pick it up and set it down. You can take it with you. I mean, they're just, they're just a lot of things that, you know, print, you know, print ads, I think are, are still there. They're strong. People go to wildfowl because they, it's single, you know, people go there for a reason. They're waterfall hunters. So, I mean, that, that has a lot to do with it, but yeah. I mean, we're going to have to build on a second wing here for all the back issues we've got. <laughs> and, and that's what I was going to, I was going to start with that today. And I want to, I want to start with Arrington on this, Mr. Brad, when you get into this magazine this year and you get in and let me just bear with me for a second, because I've been going through it so much. Just let me get to the uh, dogs and I want to show you guys. I don't know if you've taken the time to look at this. Page 124. I, I'm on it. It's amazing to me if you watch this. I, I, I honestly think I haven't counted, but here's how it goes. Retriever accessories with a slick picture of a mark being held up. It's of gear. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine full pages of dog gear. And I promise you that that's at least tied for or number one in the gear issue. And and Skip made a comment the other day, Tom and Brad, that he could have filled all 196 pages with dogs. So if you start looking through this, you see the innovation of, there's a ad by <laughs> the man on this podcast. Familiar. Um, Brad, when you go through this magazine and I'm looking at things like vests, e-collars, remotes, the dog stands from Avery Sporting Dog. Kennels to protect your dog to and from. Let's start there, Brad Arrington. There's there's a huge influx of roto molded stuff in our country now. It's I think it really started with the Yeti boom and the coolers, and they kind of took that white water, kind of that that raft, you know, that white water raft roto molded kind of design and put it into something that the ice retention was unbelievable. And now it's gone into the dog world to where these one piece roto molded kennels are in the back of the truck, and the whole marketing stance by companies like Gunner and these other ones that have come onto the scene lately is that your dog's never been more protected. Do you rely on these, Brad, or do you mainly just put all of the dogs into a train? Because a lot of dog trainers have trailers with boxes in them, in, in holes in them, what they call them. Are these kennels that are all we, that are all over gracing the pages of Wildfowl, Brad Arrington, do they work? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, um, I, we had the you know the pet porter that you grab it. Um, at Walmart and has been around forever and it, it serves its purpose. But far as safety and what I recommend um, to my customers when they haul their dog, you know, they don't want to buy a big dog box like we all used to. They want to have a crate in the back of their suburban Tahoe SUV truck. And um, if it falls out, gets banged around, the dog's in it, it, it definitely saves lives. hundred um, percent. Mr. Tom, would you would you compound that by saying that you agree with that? That you're 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 very excited with what you see with that that type of product on the market right now? Yeah, well, I you know we all start off like Brad said with you know whatever kennels were available, and and a lot of times up in our country here, you know the first plastic kennels that came out when it got to be super cold out, I mean you could look at it and they'd crack and break. So I mean you just go through a lot of those. Um, Nowadays, they're built better. Roughland came out with a kennel roto-molded, and we didn't have to worry about that part of it. And then 
just the doors on them nowadays. I think, you know, all of the uh, earlier commercial ones, the doors would fall apart after a while. And, and, and now, you know, when you have facilities like maybe Brad and myself, when you have dogs in these uh, travel crates, they can be tough on them. I mean, they can be banging on them, wanting to, you know, wanting to get out and go work. And, and uh, if they're falling apart on you, you know, we use it as professionals. They got, stuff's got to hold up. And, uh, I think that that's one big thing right now. I mean, just the durability has gotten way, way better. Do you, when it comes to the protection of a dog, Brad Arrington, I want to go back to what's going on in our country right now, just this time of year. I don't want to bring the quarantine or anything into it, but okay, let's bring the quarantine into it. Is there an influx in dogs right now with people being at home? Are there more puppies being born? Are there more puppies being sought after by the general public, Brad? And I don't know if there's probably a more important time in our country's history to where people are working from home now. They're spending all this time with quote unquote man's best friend or any pet for that matter. But today we're specifically talking about sporting dogs. Brad, has there been a more, you know, more marketable time, a more important time for the sporting dog? Are you seeing an influx in interest? I've heard rumors and people say that, like, just with hunt tests, for example, that when they go online to register, it's like sold out in like 15 or 20 seconds or something. And there's a waiting line to get into a, a hunt test or a field trial. Is this true? And have you seen an influx, Brad Arrington? Uh, we have been blessed. The Lord's blessed us. Um, you know, since the day I started with four dogs in my mom's backyard all the way till now, we got, you know, 130, 140 dogs all through the years. It seems like every year, even when things were so bad with the economy back in 2007, um, you know, it was always growing. The business was always taking a step, small step, but always growing. And uh, a guy told me, he said, a guy's always going to take care of his dogs. People are always going to have dogs. They're always going to take care of them, even through the rough times. And e even now, you know, uh, there's the, our business is complex now with the lodge, the, um, the bed and breakfast style, um, part, the weddings, the, um, offsite, the corporate outings, sporting clays, all of that. Yes, we've, we've seen an influx and um, a, a hit in that department. As far as our puppy sales, started dog sales, finished dog training, we have been spot on. If not, our numbers are up um, in the first quarter drastically again. So we, we've been blessed with the dog. So um, just like what some people stay, um, always tell me. Focus on what you know. Focus on what got you here. So that's always been dogs. So the, the dogs are, are doing really well. Do you feel the same, Mr. Tom Dawkins, as far as what Brad's saying of that? It's just been consistent. It sounds to me like the theme of what Brad said is just consistency. Is it consistency with a slight growth, in your opinion, Tom, that you've seen over the last 20 years, 45 years, really? Well, I think it has. Just business in general has. Uh, I'll echo what Brad said. You know, uh, when he talked to somebody earlier, when when they had like the uh, uh, oil embargo and gas, you couldn't get gas on weekends. Now, this is predating. So you guys may not even realize this part of it. Um, I was in business and just early into business. And and I, I had a dog trainer, an old guy who'd been at it forever. And I, and I said, hey, is, is the you know floor going to fall out of this thing right now because times are that tough? And he did say you know, people are only going to give up a certain amount of things. They're not going to give up on their dogs or their hunting. And it held true. And I think this latest episode, from a business standpoint, you go, we are as busy training as we've been. Now, boarding, people weren't going anywhere, which wasn't a big part of our business. But training has stayed steady, has uh, actually uh, increased. The dog supply business, my goodness. I mean predicted this. I thought that that would have been something that would have been in trouble. Um, we are way ahead of last year based on this. And I think people are home. They're going like, I got to do something with my dog. And, and so they're getting out and doing it, which is, hey, for us as a business and, and Brad as well, uh, when you can thrive in this environment, boy, I'll tell you what, it makes you feel good about the business you're in. Skip, listen to what Tom and Brad just said. And you coming up on your 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 uh, decade mark with 
things like rider hunts, being able to travel the country. You've been with Brad and I in Arkansas. You, I've, 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 seen, I've been with you in lots of different scenarios, pigeon hunting in Idaho. You've been to Argentina and Uruguay and Peru and all over with Ramsey Russell and Terry Demon at, at Mojo. How important have dogs been in your career? I know that right before we got on this podcast, you were late because you had to let your dog out, it sounded like. So I know you're a dog guy, Skip. How important have they been to you in being able to put that pencil to paper and create these stories for duck and goose hunters to live through vicariously? Well, you and I talked about the that it's called waterfowling and the difference in a field hunt. You don't really need a dog. It, it does just so much depth to the hunt and people love them. And I think probably we wouldn't have anywhere near the stories or probably the subscribers if it wasn't for bird dogs uh, for Wildfowl Magazine. I kind of, Tom, Tom was around. Tom, what was it like to hunt ducks with uh, Flintlock? I'm kidding. He's uh, just been a huge supporter of us for before I even got involved with Wildfowl. And he's a, he's a big part of our legacy. I was wondering if any, either of our experts have any idea how many dogs there are now, retrievers specifically, probably labs, compared to 40 years ago in terms of hunting ownership. I don't know if anybody knows for sure, but I'd be curious because it's everything it points to more and more growth. Tom, is there is there a number that you've heard lately of lab owners in our country or sporting dog owners? We have two and a half. Do we have two million to two and a half million duck hunters? Do all two million of them own a dog or a retriever, or is what's what's the number you guys have heard, Brad and Tom? Tom, first, please. I would say that I don't believe every waterfowler has a dog, but things have changed a lot now within the last twenty years. Most of these retrievers now live in the house. Our clients, those dogs live in the house. When I first started training, the dog lived out in the backyard. It was dad's dog. You know, kind of the, the family was to stay away from it, don't mess it up, better not go in the house or it'll never hunt. So these dogs have moved into a family environment now. So we feel that mom is probably as important to our whole business aspect as anybody, especially from a training standpoint. Uh, basically, that, that dog uh, that comes in the house by the time they're five months old Mom's saying, hey, we got to do something with this thing. It's driving us crazy. So from a training standpoint, it's great. But that changed a lot. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of people that, and realistically, we maybe get a chance to hunt more, you know, than maybe some people do just because of the industry we're in. But people are, are enjoying these dogs all year long versus just dad. So I, 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 think, uh, I think that there's a lot of these dogs that are filling that role as much as they are hunting. Brad, would you, would you say that every, you agree with what Tom just said? And on top of that, Brad, does it go further with the lab when it comes to drug dogs, uh, military support dogs, police dogs? Has there been an influx in that market as well? So is the lab at an all-time high, in your opinion, Brad, as far as ownership goes? I would think so. I would, I would think that, um, there, I don't know the numbers. I mean, I, I do know that, um, I hear that the lab is, um, the most owned breed out there. And just like Mr. Tom said, every that was the reason why we have the lodge is when the customer comes in that that family, whoever's in that family that we teach instead of it, the dog being a tool like it used to be. Now it's um, probably 80% family companion and 20%, um, you know, the, the conservation tool that we use it for. But um, you know, the family comes in here and we teach the, the mom, the dad, if there's a, if there's a child in the, that's really, or that dog is their child. I mean that, yeah, that, um, uh, dog is the child's dog that, um, we teach all three of them and we, we have them to stay two or three, four nights and teach them in the yard. And then we move them into more of a hunting atmosphere all the way to the duck boat and the duck blind and do a, a mock hunt for them and teach them. And then we take them in the lodge with a crowd while we're eating breakfast or lunch and tell them to do the place command. And, um, so, um, but yeah, I, I, I think, I think pretty much all of the duck hunters that I know now, they are, which they're surrounded, um, they're around me a lot, but all of them have a dog that stays inside with the family and, and duck hunts with them, as opposed to when I was 18 or 20, 
I mean, that's pretty much why I got into it. I was the only one around that picked up everybody's birds. So I got invited to all the hunts. So <laughs> that, that's how I got into this thing. When you start talking about the evolution of the dog, Mr. Tom Dawkins, and what you've seen in your career. When I hunt with Brad, I've seen Brad cast a dog on a blind at five to 600 yards, maybe, maybe two stops with the whistle hand signals and voila, the duck is back in his hand, getting ready to be put on a strap conservation tool, etiquette, morals, all of the ethics that come into what we do as duck hunters of putting the, the respecting the resource and making sure that we have compassion for those birds and that we that we count a cripple on our limit and we make every stride to, to, to bring that and collect that cripple to put on our strap. I've seen Brad's dogs do amazing things. When you started, Tom, could a dog do that? What or has it evolved even to that far to where now these dogs are going out six seven hundred yards and listening to, for that whistle and doing what they're doing? Did that? How how long has that been going on? And and, and was there dogs back in when you first started that could do that? Well, I I think the biggest difference we talked about equipment a little bit earlier on. Uh, even like back then it was licensed field trials and that was the gold standard of what dogs were expected to do. Distance was the biggest difference right now. These distances are greater and greater, and that has a lot to do with the amount of control we have on the dogs. You know, if, if you couldn't have control of a dog at, at 100 yards, no way were you going to have control of them at six, 700 yards. The remote collar totally changed the dog training industry, not early on, because it, it you know, the correction level was too high for most of the dogs. When they went to a variable intensity on the transmitter, uh, which uh, if you go down to, let's say, your lightest level, most people, if they put it on their fingertips, couldn't feel it. And the whole idea there is now we have a piece of equipment that if the dog is six yards or 600 yards away, we can reinforce their obedience and their control, like stopping on a whistle, uh, coming back would call everything. So that lengthened the game, but it also changed that particular game because back in the day, a person might lose control of their dog easily, and he was out of the trial. And nowadays, the training has gotten better, but the equipment has let people get more competitive across the line. So now you've had to add greater distance in order to separate them if, if you're talking about you know, a trial situation. But I think equipment changed it. That, that definitely changed the whole thing. Could a dog make a retrieve that far? Yes. But could he be under control? Mm, that, that's different. Brad, I see you shaking your head. I think it's in agreement. Am I right? Or do you have some words that would go against what Tom said? Or do you agree with everything he just stated? A hundred percent agree. Um, you know, it's just, you know, our, our equipment has got that much better where we can communicate and talk to that dog, whether he's a, a, bay, a, a model dog, B model dog or C model dog. I mean, if he needs more juice um, or, you know, if we need to communicate with him, at five yards or 600, we, we can do that um, now. And the dogs, um, it isn't too much pressure and they don't get down on themselves. They keep a great attitude and we can basically communicate with them with the better equipment that we have, no matter the distance. And like Mr. Tom says, the, the level of difficulty, um, these field trial judges, hunt test judges, um, they had to up the standard as the equipment got better, the trainers got better, I think with with distance and that was the only way that they could make it more difficult and um now that we have the equipment that can do that it it helps us in the field as well mr tom i've asked brad this question and i know that he's a, a southern gentleman and he's all about transparency and honesty and i know that you are as well mr tom but i want the absolute truth to this question because sometimes when i get brad talking on this i kind of sense that he's being kind of political in, in his approach to his answer and this is an election year so i'm sure that both of you are going to get a little political on me Brad has been quoted on the foul life of saying, I don't care if it's a yellow, purple, black, yellow, chocolate, uh, <laughs> uh, all of the different dogs out there. It, it, it can be a Chessie. I just like a good dog. That's Brad Arrington's quote. Mr. Tom Dawkins, please set the truth right now that there is a favorite to you, that the Black Lab is by far the best hunting dog of all time for ducks and geese, and that Brad is being totally political when he tells me that he just likes a good dog. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mr. Dawkins. 
Brad, you can answer that one for me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Dang, it, dang it, Skip. I can't ever get the truth out of a dog trainer. <laughs> you know, the answer's on the wall right there behind him. <laughs> behind Tom there. <laughs> for me. Luna. Luna. I don't Tom, so you say you just like a good dog. Yeah, but you know what? You know, I I hunt waterfall. Um I also um hunt on the bird dogs, quail hunt with them. And you have to have a dog that that fits what you're going to do. So if if I was going to go down to Georgia and hunt quail, I'm probably not going to take my labrador. You know, yeah, could he hunt quail and flush him yeah, but I would take probably an English pointer. Uh, it's like having a good student. When you have one that just wants to learn day in, day out, is just begging to do something different every day, that's what makes our job fun. It, if you're trying to motivate a dog that has zero desire to do it, that's like taking a student. My wife's a school teacher. It's like taking a student that doesn't want to be there. You know, it, it doesn't make it fun for that the trainer or the dog. So, um, it wasn't a political answer. I mean, it's fun for us to work dogs that have, you know, good desire and have high drive. Wow, he set me straight. Brad set me straight in, in Alberta last year, and now Tom Dawkins doing it from across the country on a Zoom app. So, Skip, I, don't, I, I might need to get a new campaign manager, Skip. <laughs> That's a good-looking shirt you have on, Mr. Chad. You see that? You see that? Like, yeah. like, I got the sleeves cut off already because it's 98 here today, so I was like, man. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get some sleeves off. I don't think I can have the gun show that you're showing right now, but I I don't really have, I, I I have some to ship you. I might ship Brad and Tom some for being a guest. That would be a really cool thing is that we come onto the wild fowl podcast presented by the foul life. And then all of a sudden Tom and Brad go out, there's a UPS or a FedEx box sitting there. And it's a little handwritten letter from one of the greatest waterfowl authors and writers of all time, Skipper Knowles that says, thank you very much for participating in the podcast with a shirt, a hoodie, (laughs) and maybe a bottle of uh, moonshine or something. Skip. Brilliant idea. I don't think anybody would, would say no to that. Well, it's often, I think Tom's, Tom's written more books than all of us combined, I imagine, but, yeah. I think we should have one of those shirts and wear it all the time. Do they wear oh, shirts I... in Georgia, Brad? Sir? Do they wear shirts in Georgia when you're outside? <laughs> Not on days like today, swimming trunks and Crocs. <laughs> hey, will you stand up and show us your Daisy Dukes that you have on, Brad? Because I know you train in <laughs> cut-off jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Tom, when you start talking about this time of year, we're going into August. It's, it's getting close. August 15th up where you live is kind of like the early season goose. Dogs are going to start getting acclimated. Give me some ideas of what we can do to help a dog owner right now that we're in these last stages of summer. It's almost that adrenaline rush of opening day. Um, do you start, is it almost like a UFC fighter or a a boxer to where they train, 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 and then that, that little that two-week period before the fight, they kind of just ease up and train a little bit, get their diet right, and just kind of relax a little bit before it's absolute go time. What are some things that you could teach right now, Mr. Tom, of somebody that's listening to the podcast? Well, I think it's different by the age of your dog. Let's say a lot of people maybe got a new puppy in the spring. Two things that they have to do is going to be that that puppy needs to be introduced properly to birds and gun. You just can't take him out opening day shoot the gun and hope that he's not gun shy. So those are the two minimal things if you had a new young dog this summer. I mean, as well as all your obedience and control. And, you know, we got duck dogs here, boats, decoys, you know, duck calls, goose calls. I mean, so a young dog has got to experience all of those things before you get out and hunt. Because you are, you know, you're going to be in for surprises that you don't want when you get out there. How about a guy who goes out and throws decoys out in the water? the first day with a young pup who hasn't seen it. And the puppy says, well, you've thrown everything all summer. I should go pick that up. You know, and, and, and now you're, you're trying to fight that opening morning and you've been bragging on this puppy all summer long to your buddies. So, I mean, they need to experience things. Older dogs, 99% of the time, most of these waterfall dogs, it's going to be obedience related if they've had some experience. Now, they're not going to be steady. If you aren't working on steadiness, just all of the good basics have to be there. If you have a dog that does blind retrieves and hand signals, you got to be running patterns. You got to be doing that maintenance. I don't think that there's really time off, you know, when it's like we, we build up and then we give them time off because in reality, dog training doesn't stop. 
it's it's 12 months. If you want a really good dog, it's 12 months. I know it's hard for me when I'm hunting with a dog because people, you know, are maybe hunting with me and they go, that dog's unreal. And and I'm seeing all the little things that nobody's seeing going like, well, I see this is going to get started on me. So I don't know if Brad feels that same way, but it's almost a curse sometimes because you're, you're maybe picking things apart more than anything else. Brad, go ahead. Yeah, just like Mr. Tom said, you got to um, practice like you play. And if you don't start putting all these elements, you know, if you live at the golf course and you're going out there on the golf course and using your using your um, training accessories to teach out there, and then you're surprised when you go to, to the duck blind, um, you know, because the dog doesn't perform. Um, you have to you have to practice like you play. Let that dog see the pumping of the shotgun. See him. Uh, let him see you throw the decoys out, put him in a boat somewhere, uh, put him in a blind, make him remote sit at a distance like if you were in flooded timber. And then as far as what you were asking about um, getting them prepared like a UFC fighter, you know, there's a little bit of that that goes into play. You know, if you're if you're going to be in South Georgia, September 5th, um, dove hunting. Yes, that dog doesn't need to be in the air conditioned for the last three months. Then you then you expect to go out there and um, hunt with him. You know he needs to be outside. He needs to be um, blowing his coat um, where he's prepared for that hot weather. You know, of course, even with a dog that's totally prepared um, for South Georgia dove hunting, um, it, it can still be rough on them, and you have to take all kind of safety precautions. Um, but if if I'm flying to to get with you in Canada. Um, and the foul life, you know, and it's going to be freezing cold. We might better keep him inside and keep him used to some cooler weather. So, and, and that all goes back to just practice like you play. What, it, however, you're going to be hunting for that first month to get the ball rolling. You need to be preparing for for that out in the dove line. I mean, out in the dove field, you need to be swinging with the let the dog swing with you. Teach him that push pull drill where you don't swing over that dove that comes flying over hundred mile an hour and you swing over the top of him. So um, practice like you play. Um, don't set the dog up to fail because you, you didn't have him ready and prepare the way that you're going to hunt. I love it. Mr. Tom, I, I have a dog named Axel that uh, Brad worked with the breeders and, and, and got this really high-powered lab. He started off where Brad would call me and be like, he's, he's good, and he, but he never was like a dog before him named Mo. And then all of a sudden, he came into his own. And he's three years old last year, hunter-retriever champion, master hunter. He's done it all. You've been around a lot of dogs that have been there, done that, Mr. Tom. So I'm all excited. We're up in Alberta. Brad's coming up. They get off the plane. They get to the airport in Edmonton. They're driving up. He's calling me. We're all excited. I got my best dog I've ever had in the blind with me coming right now that I personally own. And I'm like, we're going to have six guns out there, geese everywhere, ducks everywhere. We're, he's going to be doing 11 retrieves at a time and blinds and long ones and all this. And I'm bragging it up. And then Arrington gets there and he goes, oh no, two guns. That's it. Singles and doubles only. Don't call the shot on this big flock. Don't even call them in. All this stuff. And he's setting all these ground rules. Do you know where I'm going with that, Mr. Dawkins? And I got was like, wow, he's like teaching me right now that this dog is going to get acclimated to a real life situation of actual hunting. And he's not going to have eight guns going off. That happens a lot in Canada in September and October. Does that make sense to you, Tom? And would you have done the exact same thing? 100%. 100%. I. I'd put the brakes on you immediately. And you, you don't want to overwhelm them. You can train all you want, and especially with a, a new young dog. You can train all you want. But that first hunting experience has a lot to do with it. When I have a young dog that's starting their first hunt, I have one buddy come with me. He's a great shot. I'm concentrating on that young dog. We're going to sit down. He's going to shoot singles. I'm going to make the retrieves. And here, here's one thing that I do. Patience for a young dog is a big, big thing. So that hunt might last 25 minutes to a half hour. And then we pick it up. We go. I want them to have a really good experience. We're going to shoot a few birds and we're going to leave. Now, as time goes on, we're, we're going to just increase that, obviously. So we sit longer and longer. Um, I'm going to find the best spot and scout the best spot that I can. So we're going to kill some uh, ducks right away. I'm not going to have them sit for 45 minutes before opening light. We're going to sit down right before opening light, get a few birds shot, and we're going to leave. If um, 
if we don't shoot any birds, I'm going to have a training dummy with me. I'm going to throw a few dummies and we're going to leave. So Brad wanted to set that dog up for success and you for success too. Cause I, I tell you what, um, normally those things are going to go haywire on you. I mean, it takes a good old season dog to put up with that kind of a, you know, situation. Brad, do you remember doing that to me? And I almost thought it was a practical joke when you started setting me up. Like, you're like, just kidding. Get all your buddies in the blind and let's let Axel do his thing. And I see you giggling, but that was kind of like what Tom just said. It was like literally belding, pump the brakes and settle down right now. And we're, and this is how it's going to be. You remember that, right? Oh, I, I definitely remember. And, you know, as much as I had prepared Axel, everything that every element that was in that hunt Axel had seen a million times, but not all of it thrown together in one in, in one pile like we had that morning. And, and then you had the cameras out in the field that he's running over and knocking over and stuff like that and running by. You know, so there was a lot going on. And, you know, j- just like you had already pumped Axel up, and this is what I tell all my, uh, my dog owners when they take their dogs home, you know, you're excited about this. You've told your buddies about it. But when they start making mistakes – then you're going to get ill and it's going to change the way that you act and the way you act towards the dog. And then, then it really goes south. And then that fun phone call, when you're coming back from the duck blind, when you finally get alone and you call me and it, it really wasn't Brad's fault. It, it was the dog owner's fault. So, you know, that first hunt, the first five hunts, you know, take your time with it. Um, even though you've done the best job possible, to prepare that dog, you know, practice like you play. When you get out there, let let one guy shoot singles, you know, for the first hunt, maybe the second hunt, and then start working into the other stuff. And if not, if you don't, it, it goes south in a hurry, and um, you you mess up a lot of hard work that you've done, and you sour, and you get sour about the situation as well, and your buddies don't want to hunt with you anymore. <laughs> uh, true. I, I can. I'd like to comment on that. Uh, I've learned so much from Tom over the years just from editing his columns and, and wildfowl, but I remember uh, because I travel so much hunting, I have a guilt complex about getting enough local birds for my little lab, Luna. And when she was two and she was doing so well in the yard, right? I thought I got an invite to go shoot Eurasian invasive doves in like August in Eastern Colorado at a feedlot. And I'm like, Luna's going to get a hundred retrieves. It's going to be fantastic. She's going to get uh, more than most dogs get in a season, you know? And, um, she lost interest after about 10 birds and I was really disappointed. I, I'd never seen a dog just lose interest in birds. That is normally so birdy. And uh, I was, was eating dinner with Tom in Vegas and told him this story. And, uh, he just laughed. He's like, you did, you did it wrong on every single level, man. They don't need a lot of, a lot of gunfire and get a hundred retrieves. What you're looking for. It's like flinging arrows from a bow. You want, you want a few good ones and mm-hmm. uh, they're back in the kennel and, yeah, it was a, it was a real eye opener. I learned so much from him over the years. Skip, one of the products that you've put into this magazine is a dog food called Eucanuba. I, we, uh, there's different trainers and kennels that feed everything, and we feed Eucanuba at the Fowl Life. I know Brad Arrington feeds Eucanuba. I, I, I think Mr. Dawkins was another brand. Do not be afraid to talk about that brand, Mr. Dawkins. But Mr. Dawkins, when you start talking about 90 degree temperatures, um, I've also been educated on this from Brad on feeding cycles. Um, amounts, scheduling, consistency is probably the biggest word. What does it mean to be consistent in your feeding patterns, Tom Dawkins, as far as the time of day and how close do you want to stick to that this time of year? When do you want to feed this time of year? What does food do when it goes into the gut of a dog and that's going to be 90 that day? When should we be feeding in August, July, August when it's 95 degrees outside? Well, I do like consistency. I like keeping the dogs on a schedule. I mean, they, they're real schedule orientated. So um, I do have a time of day that I do want to feed. It, it's going to differ, you know, obviously on the age. If you're talking really, really young dogs, you might have to feed more than once a day. But uh, obviously, you don't want to work a dog on a full stomach. Also, one other thing people don't think about, um, and they could have gastric torsion, which means that that stomach will twist. It's fatal. So that's one reason for not uh, running a dog on a, on a full stomach. Uh, evening time is when I'm going to feed, let's say, more of an adult dog, you know, anywhere from 10 months up to a year. Uh, I do want to get the work out of the way. When we get these hot temperatures, you'll just see on the average dogs are, are a little less aggressive eating-wise, you know, than they are normally. Uh, they're hot. 
you know, so evening is probably a better time to do it. Also, uh, you know, if you're going to be working them hard, uh, you know, people think, well, they need a, a, you know, a stomach full of food. Actually, it's, it's more proven that, that, uh, you know, a dog should be, you know, a little bit more on an empty stomach when working versus on a full stomach for two reasons. Uh, Health wise, uh, obviously not getting gastric torsion and then uh, also, I mean, how, how would you feel eating a big meal and then going out and having to, you know, run 10 miles? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty much the same. Brad, when you start talking about this time of year in the, in the, in the elements, we, we talked a little bit before we started the podcast, what would you tell that, that guy that, and that girl that's getting their dog ready for an August 15th goose hunt in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, where Doc, Mr. Dawkins at, do you tell them, keep them, you know, training in the morning don't let them be running around when it's 98 and do you let do you shorten the amount the length of a of a training uh you know the training session that day when you know it's going to be that hot yeah you know you you need to have the dog um I, i had a conversation with a customer this morning he said okay dove season's right around the corner what do i need to do and i said you know um, Joe doesn't need to sleep in the house all day. He needs to be outside shaded, um, with a fan on him. Um, hopefully, um, in our dove hunts down here, we're, we're going to be under a, a, a big pecan tree, um, you know, a big oak tree in the shade, but it's still going to be 90 degrees. So the dog needs to start getting acclimated to that heat. Um, and then just, just like what I always say, practice like you play. So if, um, far as the example you made, anything that's going to go into that hunt, as far as those decoys, if they're in a ground force blind, um, this is the style guns, um, how y'all are going to hunt. If it's going to be a layout blind or if it's going to be, you know, a pop-up blind, however, um, that dog needs to get used to it. I, I I've seen a bunch of times or had a bunch of phone calls. A guy called, he said, Brad, I threw my layout blind open and old Joe took off running. Well, how many times have you thrown the layout blind up? So, you know, practice like you play. If um, And it is aggravating to dig your layout blind out of the back of all your decoys in the nose of the um, enclosed trailer. But if you're going to do it and you don't want to be embarrassed, you better practice it because it, it, it'll happen. Um, so practice like you play, get the dog. Um, and another thing I told my customer this morning, you know, after the dog, you know, late in the evening, um, besides the work that you're doing with the dog, um, with all those elements, giving him the retrieves, working on steadiness, working on some blinds, you know, put him beside the golf cart and, um, and, and jog him and build him up just like a football player this time of year. You know, our football players are getting ready. They got to get used to the heat and they got to get their lungs in shape. Um, the dog needs to do the same exact thing or he can't perform out there. If you, if you do have an older dog and he's going to pick up 20 or 30 birds, um, if he comes back after the fifth one and he can't even breathe, you're going to be scratching your head. What are we going to do now? And, you know, the answer to that would be go put him up. But um, you just got to get these dogs in shape as um, far as the heat, as far as their lungs and their physical shape, and then practice like you play. Put all those elements that's going to be in that duck hunt in your training sessions every day. And um, like Mr. Tom said, keep them excited um, with – um, you know, shorter sessions will help with that. Um, in this heat, don't, don't keep him out there for 30 minutes and he's going to get exhausted, you know, 10 minutes, have your setup, do 10 minutes, really nice, put him up, come back, hit him midday, hit him in the evening, get three lessons in a day. I love it. Mr. Brad Arrington, Tom, with it being hot, I've probably have already drank close to a gallon of water today, plus two diet Dr. Peppers because caffeine's like my only vice in life. Brad will tell you that. Um, how important is hydration? My dog doesn't drink a lot, Mr. Tom Doc, and he could do an entire session, and I would think that he'd go straight to the water and just pound it. He'll go in there and maybe two or three tonguefuls, and then he's done. I'm feeding him with water now on his feed in the evening. Talk to me a little bit about, is there a way to get a dog to drink more? Are they 100% on their own and they're going to drink what they need in that day? Or can a dog get dehydrated? Well, part of some of these things, too, have a lot to do with the energy level of the dog. I mean, when you're hunting a dog, a lot of times they just don't, they don't want to drink. They, they're not thinking about it. They're wound up. You know, they're not thinking about drinking. We'll get some dogs that don't want to eat when they're on a hunting trip because they're just so wound up to do that. Um, 
you, you know, I use, if I have a dog that doesn't want to drink or isn't drinking enough, and this goes for wintertime too. Most people think when frigid temperatures that a dog doesn't need water, they need more water actually at that time of year too. I'll take, uh, Purina has a product called Fortiflora. It's a digestive enzyme that you sprinkle on, on either their food or you put in their water. And I'll bait their water with it. And it, it has a really nice taste to it. So a dog that maybe isn't drinking well, you can do that and you can bait them into drinking more. But hey, when you're not hydrated, I mean, their muscles aren't going to work as well. Uh, they aren't going to perform as well. So a lot of times you just got to stop everything they're doing, give them a break, relax, and give them that chance to do it. Because uh, they're like little kids. They're like a little two-year-old kid running around. A lot of times you go, hey, do you need to drink? Oh, yeah, maybe I should drink. So uh, it's up to us, actually, on all of these aspects to protect them. Running in the heat, it's our job to protect them because they'll they'll go till they drop over. So, I mean, you know, like Brad was saying, short sessions, uh, you have to be looking out for their own, own you know, safety and health and welfare. So... That's a perfect transition. This will be my last question of the day before we have a little closure to this awesome conversation. Truly blessed to have you guys on. Brad, you mentioned the word safety. You're getting ready to bring a dog out here named Axel to me, and you're going to leave him with me, and I'm overwhelmed. And I'm being serious when I say this. I have cameras. I have guests. I have field production. I have duck calling. I have the flocks of ducks and geese. I have gun safety muzzles being cleared from the blind when somebody's out with their dog and handling and I'm making sure that everybody's unloaded actions open. I'm talking to the cameraman. I got my microphone on. I'm trying to set up a scene, I'm trying to entertain a little bit. This is goes for the everyday duck hunter. You add all of those elements of a loaded gun, a duck call safety, everything that goes into the hunt. And now you got the anticipation and the adrenaline and the birds working and everything. How do I do it, Brad? What am I supposed to do? Because aren't these dogs like they're good? He's going to be gung ho, right? Or is he going to sit there and be patient with me? Or do you teach a guy to, hey, this dog's first and then you worry about the everything else besides gun safety, of course. But how do you tell somebody that, Brad? It seems like a lot of work when you're with me. I feel so confident because I can do what I'm good at and you're doing what you were put on earth to do and handle that dog after you trained him for three years. Does it make sense what I'm asking you? Yeah. And, um, the rule everybody, every competitor goes by, the rule of 10,000 for muscle memory. You're going to practice it, what I show you next week, 10,000 times because I'm going to text and call you every day and make sure you're doing your homework. And then your muscle memory will be there and you'll, you'll do it right. You know, you, all those other things, yes, you have to pay attention to them and you'll have to pay attention to Axel. But if I can get you to do the lessons and do the homework between now and then, Axel's already had his 10,000. He's had his muscle memory and he, and he's still going to make mistakes, but not many. And to get you there, we got to get you ready on the verbiage and um, what to say, what to do, how to act um, around him when you're working. him. And if you'll do that 10,000 times, Axel's way, my way, and eventually it'll be your way. And um, when he converts over to you, because everything you say and do isn't going to be exactly like me. So as you and Axel work together and when y'all do that 10,000 times, hopefully as many as we can get in between now and your first hunt and it'll roll over into your hunt. You're still practicing while you're hunting. You're still getting better as a team. Axel's getting better. You're getting better. You are still building that bond and that teamwork. Um, so if you do your lessons, that's the only way I can secure myself, my training program, my brand, and you as my customer and Axel as my buddy that I trained and put all the blood, sweat, and tears in that it'll go smooth. I love it. Mr. Tom, Brad Arrington, Skip Knowles. I've been, humbly been, to the finest steakhouses in America, from Nashville to Austin to Omaha. I've been to the Almafi coast of Italy. I've been all over Europe. I've been to Argentina. I've been to the beaches of Florida, all over SoCal. The best, most pristine beaches in white sand, the most beautiful waters, the, the cool people, music, concerts, red carpet. I've been to the best baseball stadiums in the world and got to see Mike Trout hit a bomb and the crowd go crazy. I've been to awesome 4th of July celebrations. I've been on a boat at Lake Almanor, Lake Tahoe, loving life. And all of that, none of those places compare 
to duck camp, in my opinion. None of those places compare to driving down a dirt road in South Dakota and seeing that dust in your rear view, looking in your passenger seat or your back seat if you got a buddy or your girl in the front seat and your dog's laid up just loving life. And I look out to my right as that sun's going down in the west and I see mallards pitching in to a little hole or a marsh in South Dakota. Just the adrenaline, the anticipation of what I'm living and what I'm getting ready to see the next day. And now I actually get to pull that truck into a lodge, into, in, into Mossy Pond in Georgia, into Dawkins Empire in South Dakota, into Prairie Wings in Arkansas, and I get to put that truck in park, and I get to see my dog jump up, and I get to see the look in my buddies or my girl's eyes, and I get to see Mr. Billy cooking me grits and fried bologna and smothered deer steak. I get to see coffee pots come on with alarms. I get to see grown men acting like kids on Christmas Eve, putting their waders on and their lanyards around their neck. My point, Mr. Dawkins, is that there's no finer place in the world than Duck Camp America. There's no finer place in the world than being on that dirt road watching mallards pitch into a hole or wood ducks jump off a creek with your best friend, your dog, your hunting dog, your sporting dog right by your side. Does that ring true? Is that resonated in your guys' minds right now? It's freaking July, and all I can think about, besides my daughter and my mom, I'm serious about that. Please believe me when I say that. But I can't get ducks out of my mind. I can't get my calling out of my mind. My daughter's nine. She's like, Dad, if you blow it again, I'm moving out. And I believe her. So it's like they offend people's ears. My dog means more to me than most people in my life. Tom, you go first. Does that mean anything to you when you hear about how important duck camp is to me? Or do you think that I am absolutely bat you know what crazy? Well, Brad and I are glad that there's people like you out there. <laughs> we all got into this because of that same feeling. We're lucky because really dog training, whether we do you do it professionally or you going with your dog during the year, you get to live a part of duck hunting every day because you can practice and you can be working with your hunting partner. So there isn't anything, you know, I'll be talking to our trainers there and, and I'll go, you know, it'll be one of these days when, when we're out, it's a beautiful day and we're training and go like, can you believe we're doing this? So yeah, hundred percent agree. There, there is no feeling like it. And the fact that it's not 12 months out of the year, I mean, we look forward to that, that short period of time when we get to go do what we do. Um, it's, Hey, we're, we're fortunate to be in this profession and I'm telling you that and you already know that I'm sure. I agree 100%. Very well said, Mr. Tom. Brad, do you feel the same? Oh, definitely. You know, like Mr. Tom said, we shoot we shoot flyers out here on uh, Mondays and Thursdays. So we get to kill either 20 or 30 ducks or 20 or 30 pheasants every Monday and every Thursday. So I, I, I get excited about those days. Um, and uh, it, all the enthusiasm that you said earlier, um, it definitely goes through my mind. I just don't say it out loud because, like you said, people would think we were crazy. <laughs> Skip, when you hear me talk like that, do you think that I'm literally probably had way more than the two Diet Dr. Peppers that I admitted to? <laughs> no, I think you get so fired up because it's in your blood, just like that Labrador that hears you unload. The, I mean, work your pump in the house or sometimes even grab your keys. And I think it's in your blood, dude. And, uh, duck camp man we get to travel all over my wife thinks i have a a second uh family in argentina and uh but <laughs> as much as i love that place in the crazy duck limits and getting to experience skim ice in the middle of july when you go down there to another hemisphere it's um, hardly anyone hunts with dogs down there and, it, and it's a big glaring hole in the program in terms of the, the duck hunting experience not getting to work with dogs when you're down there. i know you know tom for sure and the, his, Tom's other comment really resonated with me about how getting to live a little bit of the, the season um, when you work with your dog in the off season, which doesn't really exist. But I interviewed one of the busiest men on earth in the fall last week for a, for Yukonuba. We're huge fans of Purina and everything that the innovations they've come up with. But Carson Wentz, the Philadelphia Eagles quarterback, is working with Yukonuba. Um, you know, he gets you're talking about thinking of your family there, Chad. He gets one bye week in the fall a year, and he's off back home to North Dakota to hunt fe to hunt ducks every morning with his golden retrievers and to hunt pheasants all afternoon. And, you know, he really wears those dogs out. But that's how he, he hits reset all summer long when he's training. So much of what you guys talked about, um, the elite competitive 
and ramping up to the fall, we talked about that. And he's like, no, I don't go out and throw 300 throws really quickly. I have to work up to that. Um, it's the same with our dogs this time of year. But he, his brother, Tom, observed that he hits reset sometimes late after practice and everything. Just it, it finds his center again by working with his goldens. And uh, that really resonated with me, what you guys are talking about. This that was a heck of a he, he hugely emphasized um, uh, practice how you play because he, he gets you know charged up elite athlete. He, he wants to go out and just see where the dog – I want to throw a 300-yard blind because you just can't do that. you got to start with the drills. Well, there's great athletes on earth, and Carson Wentz is one of them. There's the Michael Jordans, the LeBron James, the Mike Trouts, the Griffey Juniors, the George Bretts, you name it. There's a lot of great athletes. I don't know if there's a better athlete in the world than a sporting dog or – a bucking bull. It would be a good study to do. 1,800 pounds jumping three and a half, four feet in the air with 140 pounds on you like Chase Outlaw. Outlaw, if you're listening, I'm coming for you this season. I can't wait. To, he's back on bulls, so keep riding him, buddy. I love what you're doing right now in the PBR. Or a lab that can literally watch nine ducks come in and see seven of them go down and mark all of them and then have an idea of where he's going to go in the game plan with his handler. The, the intelligence, the, the ability to learn, the ability to be coachable and teachable it's awesome that's a great picture that was taken by mr lee jose that's a we just got so much cool vibe going on here with wild It's because we all believe in this culture tom Dawkins, any closing words sir well just everybody out there who's got a, a new dog or an existing dog that they're going to go hunt now's the time get out there and get going and uh, one thing to remember brag about your dog after the hunt instead of before <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Brad Arrington, any closing words? Great advice, Mr. Tom. Great advice. No, just thank you guys for having me on here. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, just everybody have fun, be safe, and um, keep those dogs healthy. Awesome. Very well said from Mr. Mossy Pond. Skip, any closing words, sir? No, man, I just think it's uh, it's on so much good stuff. Uh, the practice how you play thing is the biggest takeaway for me. And um, they both, they both touched on it as we, as the season quickly approaches. Uh, one of the, I'd like to share one of the greatest things Tom ever said to me when oh, he actually wrote it in wildfowl um, that whenever you're upset or get impatient with your dog at their behavior, um, you got to blame yourself, not the dog. And I just went through that half an hour ago. Luna burst in the door, didn't listen to me. She's been great for weeks, and this time she just had enough of the heat or something. Ran over, grabbed a bag of elk jersey, jerky, and disappeared up, upstairs with it. And I just went, oh, and I'm like, don't be mad at her. She's obviously not getting enough attention or, or something. But that's a great reminder as well. Blame yourself, not the dog. <laughs> this has been an awesome conversation for me. I'm humbled to have you guys on here. Thank you so much. Thank you to Wildfowl, what the brand and the culture means to the American duck hunter, the Canadian duck hunter, the world waterfowl hunter. Sporting dogs are so important. Keep them safe. Stay on their health. Make sure you're keeping up on their veterinarian visits. I, I had a great conversation with Ira McCauley yesterday. He's a veterinarian, a dog owner, a dog, a duck hunter, and had a lot of good points. So just stay on top of it like Tom and Brad alluded to today. Watch out for the heat right now. And let's all drop our egos when it comes to this lifestyle we're all in it for the same reasons it doesn't matter how many you kill it's about the picture you paint the stories you write the memories you make with your friends family in the great outdoors and remember we are not entitled to this it's not written into our declaration of independence our constitution that we have the right to hunt we do have the right to bear arms through the second amendment and we're always going to have that through the nra and our leadership but it's going to be a hunter that gets this privilege taken away for us because we are not entitled to hunt. We are blessed and privileged. So please keep that in mind when we get to go pick out a new puppy and we get to go to the Sporting Clays range and we get to go to Max Prairie Wings or Final Flight or Simmons or some of the great retail stores in our country to get our next duck call or dozen mallard floaters or our goose flag or our banded waders. Always keep that in mind that it could be gone in a heartbeat. So let's do our job to be great stewards of the land, great voice 
voices, flying the flag, being great ambassadors of what it means to be an American hunter. We're blessed to do it. I'm Chad Belling. This has been another edition of the Fowl Life podcast, the 2020-21 Wildfowl, 196 pages of pure genius by my man right there, Skip Knowles, Mr. Chuck, his creative director, and his entire crew at Outdoor Sportsman's Group, the Outdoor Channel, the Sportsman's Channel, the World Fishing Network, Wildfowl, Gundog, Peterson's Hunting, you name it, they do it. We're blessed to have them in our culture to keep us going vicariously through when they put that pen to pencil, that typewriter going off, the pictures they take. Thank you to everybody for being on here today. Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support our brands here at the Fowl Life and Banded. We're so blessed to have all of the support. And also, thank you for the subscriptions of our podcast. Check out our sister podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody. Tom, hit that button. This song is called My Fowl Life by the Brock Band 2AM Logic. Thank you all very much. Bye.